So at a time where we need less of these commodities, um, if we're going to do anything climate smart, now that corn and soy are being codified as climate smart, we're down the rabbit hole. So we really have to, we really have to understand who we're working with. The USDA is run by these people, and we're here asking for them to provide us with an organic standard, and we can't. Instead, we have to hold them accountable to what's left of the standard. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label, distinguishing organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Ben Dobson. He's the co-founder of both Hudson Carbon and Hudson Hemp. His firsthand knowledge of testing agricultural soils for changes in organic matter over time has led to his skepticism of government funding for so-called climate-smart agriculture. Ben also calls out the USDA for not supporting Mexico in their policy to stop the import of GMO grain from the U.S. This Mexican policy would support organic growers here in the United States, and yet the USDA is against it. Thank you, Churchtown Dairy, for lunch. Our first speaker after lunch is Ben Dobson. There are very few people in this world who understand the food system as well as Ben does, and also have spent the number of years farming that Ben has. So he's really a wealth of information. Ben. Good afternoon. Thank you, Lindley, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, today is about, it's been about 10 years um, since this building went up, and, uh, and I'm, it's about eight years um, since Abby Rockefeller and I started something called Hudson Carbon, um, which I'm going to talk about a bit in my, the title of my talk is sort of the politics of uh, carbon farming, which you now hear about from the government, which is now pretty problematic. Um, <laughs> But I'll first start, I'm originally from this county, from Hillsdale, New York. Uh, my parents started what was just the second organic farm here. Hawthorne Valley started the first, I believe. There are several folks from Hawthorne Valley. Um, and then my parents uh, made their way from the U uh, University of California Santa Cruz Farm and Garden Project to some land my grandfather bought and started an organic farm um, where we grew vegetables and I was trained to say herbs. Um, <laughs> And uh, we still grow vegetables and herbs, and the herbs are now legal. So <laughs> when we have a more structured food system, maybe we'll just do food. Uh, anyhow, uh, from the, my parents' small family farm, I then went and did a larger scale vegetables, a couple hundred acres where we made prepackaged salads for about 130 supermarkets. Um, and that was a larger scale organic where I felt the, uh, the real pressure of scale and organic and choosing between your survival and your ideals, which isn't very fun. I later worked in the Caribbean exporting bananas and coffee for a short time, uh, coffee for much longer. 
uh, and then spent 10 years uh, in this, the last 10 years in this area working with Abby and for some, some of that time with a couple of her siblings uh, transitioning land from conventional grain to organic grain and forages. Um, but the primary thread for the past 10 years has been taking land in this home county of mine with great partners and removing chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, and genetically modified crops from them. And in 2015, Abby and I had a lot of discussions about, well, what does organic really mean? And uh, quite literally, we're talking about organic matter in soil, and organic matter contains carbon, usually over around 57%. So when the organic farming movement got started, uh, Sir Albert Howard, J.I. Rodale, many folks were talking about let's put more organic matter back in the soil and the organic matter will carry uh, microorganisms, hold water, and help transfer nutrients naturally and therefore we won't need chemicals or synthetics. So let's not forget where the word organic came from. So when we undertook these organic transitions on this land around here, we undertook to study the changes in soil carbon in those soils to understand if our organic farming, both certified and real organic farming, uh, was working. And I think we found out some things, and we found out a lot of things we still don't know. Um, but one path I didn't expect was to see, you know, there's a real exciting period after we started Hudson Carbon where this word regenerative came up, and all of a sudden companies and politicians were really interested in the words climate and regenerative and farming. Um, and it took us until about 2019 to realize they, they'd forgot the word organic wasn't being used, but regenerative and climate smart was. Um, so I'm gonna kind of walk through uh, the process of watching um, the last few years of politics where you hear these words climate smart commodities, where you hear the words, um, you hear the words regenerative, but you never hear the word organic. Uh, and that's the world we're living in now. We need to start hearing the word organic for its real meaning again in this political discourse because it's really been hijacked. So uh, when we started Hudson Carbon, uh, we initially started talking to Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory to help us with scientific methodologies and how to, how to best measure soil carbon and soil cores. And then um, now I, w I know it's a bit flawed, but we laid out a experimental design across 2,500 acres in different parts of our farming system on different parts, uh, type parts of soil. Um, and we, we set out to detect change in soil carbon at different depths in the soil vis-a-vis -vis different practices occurring in those locations. Um, and then we layered on the use of eddy flux towers, which read, there's one across the way, that every 30 minutes detects the localized carbon dioxide um, for the field that it's in. So it weeds out the noise of the you know, general atmospheric carbon dioxide, which is over 400 parts per million now. And some days you get a reading where it's 220 parts per million. It means the pasture is really sucking in some carbon. Uh, when we tilled up that field, it was up around 700. Uh, so we watch in a few sites um, every 30 minutes the carbon dioxide level, and over there, methane as well. And out back on the compost piles, you'll see all these boxes. And those are taking readings of nitrous oxide, methane, and carbon dioxide um, throughout the day and night. And that's because we've learned that to really support real organic farming, we need to take real measurements 
of these gases and these um, uh, and these these critical elements, so that we have something we can compare to uh, to the conventional system. Okay, so now let's get into the politics part, uh, where we we farm organically in a real way, and we we seek to monitor what we do here. But um, so we started in 2015, and it was a really exciting time. Sort of immediately, we set out with setting out um, methods to measure, and the COP uh, the 2016 Paris Climate Accord was coming up. So we were planning with a lot of collaborators um, what to do with Regeneration International and the late Ronnie Cummins, whose wife Rose is here today. We, we did a lot of planning. And we communicated with many groups who were, this was the first real opportunity on a global stage to say that farming and soils are part of this climate thing we're talking about. Because sort of in the public's mind and politicians' mind, carbon is a word that's been made bad. And the truth is carbon's sort of the underpinning of our life system. So we need to talk about the cycle of carbon and that we may have too much in one place and not enough in the other right now. And this conference was the opportunity to get that out there. Um, so we participated in the, the four per one million initiative and several other initiatives. And, and after the conference, we felt, oh, we've really made some progress because coming out of Paris, it felt that soil was given its, uh, its rightful place within the climate discussion as a, as a core place where carbon could be stored and protected and where good management of land could impact maybe more carbon getting into the soil or, or more carbon that we already have in the soil being protected. But by the next year, we saw something. We also at the Paris Climate Accords, you had agreements like uh, Corsia, where the airlines said, well, we're never going to be able to stop our emissions. So we need to find a way to offset. We need to be able to buy carb tons of carbon that's been sequestered by other people so we can just keep flying and you can, you can get your first class and everything. And then we started getting a lot of interest from uh, corporations asking, hey, are you guys going to do any of these carbon offsets? And I'll admit, I really got into it for a couple of years. It's like, yeah, we're definitely going to get carbon money for organic farms and make these measurements. And as we increase carbon, we're going to get paid per ton. And, and as we monetize carbon, the world's going to get better. Um, so that didn't happen. Um, I, and as we, every time we got close to, to selling some carbon credits, you'd find out that the buyer was like an oil company or somebody making something out of plastic and they just needed to offset their bad behavior. So, and Abby was like, when are we gonna get money to farmers? I'm like, gee, I don't know, there's just no good money out there, you know? <laughs> so, but what really happened also is we had a crisis in science where all these carbon markets got started. So you now have uh, Chevron buys carbon credits. Uh, you know, they pump oil all day and they can buy carbon credits to offset their oil pumping for $8 a ton. Um, Exxon buys carbon credits. Every major airline buys carbon credits. And very rapidly, large tracts of land across the world are in these carbon schemes where, and usually these tracts of land are owned by very large landowners. Delta doesn't want to work with a lot of small landowners. You've got to have a big, big tract of land that the people have already been removed from, and then you can sell some carbon credits. So this kept getting worse and worse. And so we really pivoted at Hudson Carbon to saying, okay, how are they getting away with this? And we've spent the last four years understanding methodologically how flawed science has become the underpinning of these models that drive soil carbon estimates 
and drive forest carbon estimates. And the and there's now it's now really becoming systematized. The primary solution for sequestering carbon and selling carbon credits in farmland is no-till agriculture. And there's some you know, pretty cheaply done studies that study the accrual of carbon in the top eight inches of soil and no-till systems. And these models are mostly all built off these old studies. The truth is the carbon in those systems is lost in the deeper soils and you temporarily sort of freeze some dead biomass and increase your soil carbon. And then process-based models are built out of this. And then groups that certify carbon credits use these process-based models to then say that this industrial agricultural system's creating carbon credits for this industrial polluter to buy. So that's, that's how it's shaken out. So, so what we do at Hudson Carbon now is we're working uh, to really work on new methods so that the, the studies that underpin these models, so we can work on some real science that shows these models really don't work. And there are many of us in the movement working towards that. Um, but I'm also going to move a little further into where the, we really have to watch out. And we often have to watch out when, when many of us in the organic movement, you know, we tend to be often more liberal or formerly more liberal. And we get a government like the one we have. And we say, oh, they must be doing something better than Trump, right? Um, so the last couple of years, we've been delivered a couple gems. Uh, one's called the Climate Smart Commodity Program. Uh, and the other is the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, where apparently if you print two more trillion dollars, you're going to reduce uh, inflation. Um, so let me get into these. Uh, the Climate Smart Commodity Grants. We, uh, we, $2 billion turned into $3 billion was unlocked by the administration um, for climate smart agricultural practices. And this is the, the USDA trying to really work with the idea that you know, good farming practices results in a resilient climate and sequestration of carbon. Um, so the first $66 million went to the Iowa Soybean Association because soybeans have really proved to sequester carbon um, in a big way. And then, <laughs> then uh, we, we saw some money go to Corteva, the largest seed company in the world, formerly Dow DuPont, because they've got some real good GMOs that sequester carbon as well. Um, and then I will also say the program did benefit some good folks. Some of them are in the room today, and that was good. But at the end of the day, this movement proved very divisive where we have a word regenerative being applied to multiple systems. And the impact of this Climate Smart Commodity Grant was really devastating to many of us in the movement. Um, we all, former allies, some of us still are, had to compete with each other for grants. I watched many people who have been organic farmers their whole life ally with corporations who are on the exact opposite side of us just because they needed the money to survive, or they decided to compromise themselves. And we're in a very fraught time where, there's, where, we are, where there, we, we're, not, we, we're not facing a direct opponent. We're facing an opponent from within who's working much more with co-opting of words, of language, and then using money to create alliances um, that break former alliances. And we're here today with Real Organic Project because I, I, while I'm a bit snarky, 
the real truth is that we need to make an alliance between good science, good policy, good food, and health. And in order to... And in order to do that, I'd say we, in a way, we need to hold the USDA accountable to standards and to improve standards. We also have to work outside of them until we can get the right people inside. Um, I'm going to move on to the IRA and then kind of move out of the climate po politic topic and, and just talk a bit about uh, movements around the world that are occurring. Um, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, is our so-called you know, crown jewel of the, of the climate movement. Um, they're at work. You know, they're putting concrete pylons out off Cape Cod for wind towers. Um, soy oil, soybean oil is apparently a green fuel, so that amidst a world food crisis in the Ukraine war, we're going to see a major boost in soybean production next year because farmers will all get a tax break and a subsidy for growing soybeans to make green biodiesel. That's the IRA, uh, cooked up by Tom Vilsack for us. That was the, the ag part. Uh, same thing with ethanol for corn. So at a time where we need less of these commodities, um, if we're going to do anything climate smart, now that corn and soy are being codified as climate smart, we're down the rabbit hole. So we really have to, we really have to understand who we're working with. The USDA is run by these people, and we're here asking for them to provide us with an organic standard, and we can't. Instead, we have to hold them accountable to what's left of the standard and make them improve. And we, we have to understand, as Francis pointed out, we, very, we have very few insiders anymore. So from the outside in, we're, we're really facing a system um, that, that's difficult. Um, so getting back to the sort of the, the politics of climate, uh, it extends internationally as well. Um, we have uh, see corn and soy spreading across Brazil at uh, unprecedented rates. And most of this is with uh, American seed companies, many times American ag school graduates, um, and American companies uh, like Bungie moving the beans out. So when Biden met Lula, and did not provide uh, barely any money for Amazon protection. And then a month later, it was announced that Bungie and Vitera were joining to be the third uh, largest grain company in the world with ADM and Cargill. It was no, uh, you know, not really surprising that we didn't help protect the Amazon because that will result in more efficient cutting of the Amazon and export of beans from it as a leverage point over China. So that's sort of, sort of some of our international climate smart work. Um, and then we're also up to some other good work, too. Uh, in Mexico has determined that they don't uh, want not a GMO grain anymore. Um, they've banned glyphosate and imposed a tariff on U.S. white corn so their own white corn growers can feed their own country human-grade grain. Um, upon this announcement, Tom Vilsack flew to Mexico uh, in November of last year. And, uh, and threatened the Mexican government that they would be taken to trade court if they refused to take genetically mod gra modified grain from the U.S. Uh, and in March, uh, the case was referred to trade court, where it now is. Mexico will have to convince the USMCA that uh, GMOs are unsafe for human consumption um, in order to win. They're very unlikely to win. 
Um, but I guess my point is here is that as we're moving into a, a, a yet another election year in time, I think we fundamentally have to think differently about, about what we're looking for. Um, because we're, we're living in a system where if either of the major party wins, we're gonna continue to see the same thing in food. And it's critical that we as eaters and we as farmers and we who believe in this uh, movement stay close to those who provide us our food directly and work directly um, directly with anyone we have access to who still has a voice in the political system or media to take a stand against this. Because the, the control and takeover started in this country many years ago, but it's now extended outside of it. And the right to farm and the right to eat what you want is becoming further and further away. And we're all here today because our country allows, uh, basically we have to pay more for good organic food, but for many of us in the world, we don't have a choice. And I think that demanding change um, at the base level with what we eat and in all aspects of our life will result in change all the way up through issues that may feel unrelated to food. And I'll leave it with that. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org, or on our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when we'll hear from food systems expert, Alan Lewis. He talks about the negative outcomes local organic farmers are experiencing from consolidation in distribution, wholesale, and the retail space as well. Mm -hmm.